All right, y'all. So this was released just yesterday with Las Vegas Channel 8 News and Now. It was a apparent UFO sighting. It was caught on a cop cam, and there was a witness that said it landed in their backyard, so they called 911. Now, this has been kept under wraps for several weeks. Just so you know, this actually happened in early April. So it's been a month or so out, two months out, since the incident took place. But it's the nature of the call from the witness that is startling. But I'm going to start you with the actual cop cam footage because that's the first thing that took place. An officer was called to a incident of sorts and he was able to catch on cop cam footage of what looked like some sort of craft falling out of the sky. And then moments later, a gentleman calls 911. Here's the cop cam footage. Pretty interesting to say the least. You can see that the officer is somewhat startled by what he sees and is kind of in awe at the moment. But what's striking about the whole thing is the call from this gentleman. Listen to this 911 call. There's like an eight foot person beside it and another one's inside and it has big eyes and looking at us and it's still there. Okay, where is this on your property? Uh, in my backyard. I swear to God, this is not a joke. This is actually we so we terrified of it. So there's two people or two subjects that are in your backyard. Correct, and they're very large. They're okay. like eight foot, nine feet, ten foot. I don't know. They're they look like they look like aliens to us. Big eyes. They have big eyes. Okay. Like like I can't explain it. And big mouth. They're shiny eyes and and they're not human. They're 100 percent they're not human. Okay. So as you can hear, or as you can probably tell, some of the call seems to be being cut off, but it lets us hear the part where he says there's an eight to nine foot tall person with large eyes and a large mouth standing next to the craft, two subjects to be exact. And then he goes on to even say that they're nine and 10 feet tall, that he's not sure. Obviously they're not hostile, but it took an hour for the police to react to the call. So by the time they got there, the beings are said to be long gone. I find it hard to believe that no footage whatsoever was captured. The way people are with cell phones these days, I can't imagine anything that anything like that taking place without it being captured on camera of some sort, at least a cell phone, if not a ring or something along those lines. So where's the footage? Now, of course, we must assume that they are being withheld, that most likely the family did take footage. The footage was most likely apprehended or confiscated by the government, possibly, who knows, even the men in black. I guess my question is, why now? Why are they releasing this now? Um, what's the purpose of it? And as far as the races of species of alien go, I don't know exactly what they are. They could be giants. And of course, naturally, you want to think grays, but the big eyes thing, yes. The big mouth, no. Generally, grays don't have large mouths. So that has me kind of wondering, could they be a race of giants 
like the Anakim, for example, one we're not as familiar with. Who knows? They didn't seem to say they were reptilian in nature, so I'm kind of writing that off. And the craft, it does look like it could be circular shape or cone shaped. It leads me to believe that it is a possible race of giant. Either way, though, let me know what y'all think in the comments about this wild stuff. Plus, I am probably going to go live tomorrow night at 11 p.m. Tomorrow night at midnight, for sure, by midnight, I will be going live Saturday. So make sure you're there. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, including this. So check it out. Staying in love, staying in light, be kind to others. See you tomorrow night. I am out. All right, y'all. So more developments in this Las Vegas UFO case. This kid has now come forward. This is the original caller on the 911 call. If you haven't seen it, you've been living under a rock. It's going viral as heck right now. I will share the video after this video of the initial call and experience that they had. But this was back in April, mind you. They investigated it for a couple months and it's just now coming out. So he just released more footage and it's of a ring camera. This is supposedly a nearby ring camera that caught the UFO actually falling out of the sky and making impact. You can hear it. You cannot see it. But check it out. So it sounds like it could be extraterrestrial. It sounds really interesting. It sounds alien-esque, absolutely. Now, again, people are kind of prying, poking and prodding because they don't believe that there's no footage of these beings. They just aren't buying it. But in lieu of that, he shared another clip of, it seems like a family member's phone, where you can see some entity pop into the screen. And then you can look at the bottom of the fence and see something possibly peeking. Now, it looks like a shadow entity above the fence. Check this out. So I'm going to play his testimony after this. Let me know what y'all think in the comments. Wild stuff. Is it true? Is it not? Are they doing this for clout? What's going on here? I'm as confused as y'all. Do I believe something took place? Kind of because of the impact video. It's pretty damning. But there's no actual physical proof. Now, the shadow entity thing was intriguing, absolutely. But there's shadow people. So I don't know. Let me know what y'all think in the comments. This stuff's getting wild. The best of my abilities. This is not a conspiracy theory. I'm not making this story out for cloud or fame. I just want to tell you what happened to me and my family. And I know some people are not going to believe this, but each person is different so this is what happened to me keep in mind this is midnight and i'm fixing a truck 
in my backyard. At this point, I'm only with my brother, and I hear something fall from the sky. I turn around, the only thing I, I see is a big light falling from the sky, and moments after, I feel a big impact and a, and a bang, sort of like a big impact fall. And me and my brother looked at each other, and we were scared, but, the, but when the impact happened, it was sort of like a shockwave, like an out-of-body experience. So to say, when I tried to look at the object, it was all blurry, not my vision, but only the backyard area. And I hear thousands of footsteps around me, and maybe a couple seconds later, the blurriness was gone. And here's, here's the footage of the body, the police officer's body cam, and here's the object I'm, the object I'm referring to, the light. Here's a ring camera video. You can hear the bang. This is around the neighborhood. So here's the video. So when that happened, the only thing I can see in the backyard is a tall creature, probably around eight, 10 feet tall, very thin. So I called my dad, he went to the backyard and he saw the same thing, the same creature I saw. He told me to go inside the house. At this point, we all freaking out, me and my family. And here's the video where we were in the backyard area. You can see, you cannot see it too good, but on camera, but it's there. Here's the video. Moments after the video, me and my brother went to go pick up my tools. Then my brother calls me, and he told he told me shakingly, "Look behind the forklift." So I look. Keep in mind, I'm facing the forklift, and then I see the alien creature. So when I saw it, it was a tall, skinny, lengthy creature he was a gray greenish color and when i looked at it in the eyes my body just froze also y'all i plan on covering this in my live stream tonight so check it out midnight be there stay tuned stay in love stay in light be kind to others i am out the following story broke the internet just two days ago i am a mythologist I have seen giants, and they are now among us. I am a mythologist. It was a profession passed down from generation to generation, and I've always been interested in it. The old tales my dad used to tell me about fairies, cyclops, and big giant wolves always had me on edge. There was something he never spoke about, however. That was giants. Whenever I brought up the giants, he would clearly change from cheerful to stone cold, even fearful at times. One night, my dad came home drunk. I could smell the whiskey on his breath from 10 feet away. He was clearly in a state of panic, as the only detail I remember vividly were his big eyes. They were almost black. When it was time for me to sleep, I asked him for some tales, and no matter how mad he was, he always told me something I had never heard of. I miss those times. He was telling me a story about an ancient fairy garden that produces dreams when I brought up giants. Without a single word, he switched out the lights and left my room, leaving me to soak in the eeriness of if he was mad or not. When dad left, I was around 16. He one day went on a journey to Ireland because they found evidence of something. I don't know exactly what it was, 
but his notes suggested it was something to do with angels. There were very detailed illustrations of them and how they looked, and it was completely different to what I could have expected an angel to look like. It had more than two legs. Wings were small, like a baby bird's, but the most striking details were the eyes. They had the same big black eyes like the night my father had when he was drunk. I felt uncomfortable looking at it. When I got out of college, I had a degree in mythology. I had a few friends who were interested, but most either became something else or a partner in the field, like archaeology. One night, while at home, I was doing some research when I got a call from one of these friends. I'll call him Troy. He was clearly frantic, as if he was in a hurry. And that's when he asked me for help. Apparently, on one of the digs, they had found evidence of something that needed to be identified. My first and most obvious question was, why would you need a mythologist for that? He avoided it and said they could fly me out tomorrow. This was in Afghanistan, but it was in a more remote or desolated area of it. Since this was the case, I wasn't too fearful of any potential threats. And after some time of thinking, I agreed. And I was flown out in time no less than when the sun had fully rose the next morning. When I stepped onto the dry, sandy landscape of the country, I was shocked. The sun was blazing so hot it felt like I would be reduced to ash. I felt uncomfortable, and I moved to the spot where I was meant to be picked up. When the pickup arrived, I hopped in, and after a few hours of treacherous heat and sandy roads, we finally arrived to a very large dig site. There were scientists, journalists, but most confusing of all, there were armed guards. As I shuffled over, Troy greeted me with a tight hug and gestured for me to follow him, so I did. We walked into one of the many research tents, and there were very old illustrations, books, and more. But the one thing that caught my eye was a bottle that was waxed shut with a rolled up piece of paper inside. I looked at it, and he caught my gaze and explained, Yeah, we uh, found that at the site. We think it might be a codex or a dating. If we are right and able to figure out what it says, it could change quite a lot about the history of this place. All the things we wondered could now be proven. Then I asked the burning question, Why do you need me then? A massive lump formed in his throat as he walked out, me trailing closely behind. When we arrived to the main attraction, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. In this big, rectangular-like hole stood a skeleton. This skeleton was no less than 12 feet tall and almost 5 feet wide. I almost thought this was a joke or an animal, till I saw the very clearly blue oxidized copper spear and massive iron brace in with the skeleton. Then flashed in my mind the memories of my father's avoidance to talk about the giants. As a mythologist, you don't actually think any of this is possible. It's mostly just cultural study. By the time I had looked at this thing long enough, it was very dark, around 11 p.m., so we all headed to bed. The only thing I remember thinking is, was this real? Have we found evidence of giants? And so I passed out in the pool of my own thoughts. When I awoke, I had heard lots of commotion, and most confusingly, the sounds of guns being loaded. I sprung out of bed rushing to see that the skeleton had disappeared, but even worse, so had Troy. He was absolutely nowhere to be seen. I heard people talking, then spotted a crowd up ahead, so I followed. When I stood to see what they saw, I was shocked. There were massive trails of clear drag marks, but also there were footprints, at least four feet in length. The drag marks led into a valley of mounds, and so we planned to follow them. Our main thought was that Troy had taken the body and planned to sell it. When I went to his tent, everything was clearly, frantically thrown around, as if he had scampered to get out of bed quickly. But also, the bottle with the message was gone. I caught up with the group, and as we followed the trails, I started to become anxious, fearful even. Something about this wasn't right. How could he have moved that massive skeleton out of that pit and not have made any noise? Nevertheless, the weight of it, the spear and the brace was also gone. How is any of this possible? 
When the trail started to shift, it went up a ramp-like slope into the top portions of these mounds. They were around 100 to 500 meters tall. When we followed them, we arrived at a cave, and without any hesitation, the group shuffled in. I stood there in shock, but before I could think, my legs did for me, and I moved in. The first thing I noticed was the smell. It was rancid, worse than death. But the second thing was the darkness. I had a torch with me, but before I lit it, I felt helpless. If I got lost in there without a torch, I would never make it out. I would be forced to die slowly, constricted by only the boundaries of these rocky walls. When I lit the room, I saw the group was a bit ahead, so I jogged to catch up. When I hit a loose rock, and it bounced into the wall, making a loud echo, then we heard it. Loud, heavy footsteps came from right in front of the group. The first thought was a wild animal, and so a lot of us rushed out. When we made it, we heard yelling and screaming. Then the noise started, the muffle, till it all stopped. Among the eerie silence, we heard what sounded like something eating, a predator feeding on its prey. One of the many armed guards quickly loaded his rifle, and the sounds suddenly stopped again. The footsteps slow this time came towards us, and the guards immediately pulled their weapons up, waiting. Then slowly formed out of the darkness a massive shape of a human. From even that, I could tell it was at least 15 feet, maybe more. Then it emerged. From that cave, a massive axe swung out, striking one of the guards in the body, sending him off the mountain. There were no screams. He was gone instantly. The enormous figure emerged, and what I saw will be engraved in my memory as if etched in stone. It stood tall, almost 20 feet. Its skin was a pale, stark gray, and its features were strict. It had black hair, deep eyes sunken into its head, far more than naturally should. Its nose was slightly cut off, and it had horrendous scars on its face. But its mouth is what I remembered the most. It had a grin with thousands of tiny, razor-sharp teeth, and there were blood on them. It was primal, a supernatural being that should not have existed. Outlining his body were bones. He used rags to tie them onto him. It was wearing the skeleton of what we had extracted as if it was a trophy. But what still gives me nightmares today was what hung off its body. There were twin ropes with parts mounted on them like trophies. They were his friends. The guards opened fire on the beast as it let out a deep, guttural roar, almost like the screech of metal. I watched as it grabbed the closest person, one of the guards, and without any trouble, the beast squeezed. The guard turned to nothing. For that brief moment, it was distracted, so I ran beneath its feet as it dropped his lifeless body to the ground. I ran and ran till I found where it had been hiding. There was a small cavern, and there stood a bunch of dead grass, sticks, and the like. I didn't know how this thing got grass in the middle of Afghanistan, but I didn't care. As I scanned his lair with my torch, I spotted it. The bottle with the wax sealing it closed and the letter inside. It was easy to break, and I figured in my last moments, I would read it. This is what it read. To those who happen to find this, I am dead. I am not the body of the monster that has been found. I am rather the man by the name of Lucas Hitchwood. What you have dug up is a giant, a massive beast that resides in all places, but is mostly considered fantasy. Lucas Hitchwood was my father's name. The note was smeared in ink and was clearly written in a hurry. I looked at the bottle and noticed something. Of course, it was an old whiskey bottle. Everything finally clicked. He never went to Ireland. He went here. He knew they existed. As I said this more, gunshots echoed and screams emanated from the pitch dark. My torch couldn't illuminate. In a hurry, I ran to a wall and saw something shiny. There was a watch, a silver watch, 
which I recognized. It was my father's. I saw bones scattered and I realized he had died here. I sobbed like a baby till the shots stopped. I thought it was coming back. Then I heard my name being called. I rushed out to see the beast had fallen dead. Its eyes lay open to reveal the same dark sunken voids I had seen just moments ago. That was the last I remembered. The black voids of that thing's eyes. Then I passed out. I woke in the hospital and was told I had suffered from intense stress, which caused the fainting. As the nurse walked out, two men in suits walked in. I had heard of this, the men in black. What you saw that day is something that very few have ever seen. We have contacted who you work for and have managed to get you a sum of money in exchange for your sworn secrecy. A contract will be provided for this soon. I was paid $300,000 to be quiet. I was never to speak about the horrors I witnessed that day. Now, when I walk around the streets, I notice more black eyes staring at me. It's not long before I join my dad. The stress has been too much. I'm considering just giving up and leaving this world in peace. Wow, fam. What a hell of a story. My girlfriend had stumbled upon it. It was posted just two days ago to the internet. It's probably going to be heard more after this. But you already know. You heard it here first. So... What do y'all think? Crazy stuff, right? His dad was a mythologist, told him all these crazy stories, but always avoided the giants. Left for a trip to Ireland, but he ended up in the same place his dad actually went. Crazy. What I find to be the most fascinating about these stories is they seem to be located or take place in the Middle East, Kandahar, Afghanistan area. And these things epitomize what the Bible called the fallen the abominations. Regardless of this story's validity, whether it's true or not, I have no idea. But an awesome account nevertheless. And it's something that we cannot write off. As soon as I heard it, I knew I had to share it with y'all. So I hope you enjoyed. Let me know what you guys think in the comments about this one. Wild. His dad left the bottle. Just awesome. Again, let me know what you think. Stay in love, stay in light, stay tuned. I am out. This park ranger claims there's something sinister going on in our national parks and that the U.S. Forest Services may be trying to hide the truth. The following accounts are from both him and his colleagues. Warning, these may give you nightmares. As always, my people, this is for entertainment purposes only and may or may not be true. I just provide the information and let you decide. Enjoy. One day, a group of park rangers were out doing recon for mountain lions because there had been several reports of sightings in the last couple of days. One of our jobs is to scout out the areas where these animals are seen to ensure that if they are in the area, we can warn people and close off those trails. He was out on his own in a very heavily forested part of the park towards dusk when he heard what sounded like a woman screaming in the distance. Now, as most of you know, when a mountain lion screams, it sounds almost exactly like a woman in distress. It's unsettling, but far from abnormal. My buddy radioed back and let Ops know that he heard one and that he was going to keep going to see if he could figure out where its territory started. He heard the mountain lion scream a couple more times, always from the same spot, and determined the approximate area of the mountain lion's territory. He was about to head back when he heard another scream, this time within only a few yards of him. Of course, he freaks out and starts heading back at a much faster pace because the last thing he wants is to run into a damn mountain lion and get mauled to death. As he got back on the path and started heading back, the screaming followed him. 
and he broke into a jog. When he was about a mile from Ops, the screaming stopped, and he turned around to see if it was following him. It was almost dark by this point, but he said in the distance, just before the path rounded a corner, he could see what looked like a male figure. He called out to them, warning them that the paths were closed and that he needed to come back to the welcome center. The figure just stood there, and my buddy started to walk over. When he was about 10 yards away, the figure took, as he described, an impossibly long step toward him and let out the scream he had been hearing. He didn't even say anything. He just turned and sprinted back to Ops, never looking behind him. By the time he got back, the screaming had moved back into the woods. He didn't mention it to anyone else, just said that there was a mountain lion in the area and that they would need to close those paths until the animal could be located and moved. This ranger had a similar experience. I was out on a training exercise a few years ago. I was camped out in my tent and I heard someone walking around the outside of camp. We're told not to wander far, so I wondered if maybe it was a rookie who'd gotten up to pee and couldn't find his way back. A few years back, a guy almost fell off a mountain. Well, I'm paranoid about that happening again, so I got up to see what was going on. I went to the edge of camp and I called to whoever it was and told them that camp was this way, but they kept going back out into the woods, so I went after them. I know it was stupid, but I was half asleep and I just really didn't want to deal with some idiot getting hurt. I followed this thing on a dead straight course for about a mile, and then it stopped on the edge of a little river. I could see the outline of it because the water was reflecting the moon and it looked just like an ordinary guy. He had a pack on and it looked like he was facing me. I asked if he was okay, if he needed help and he cocked his head like he didn't understand me. I always had my pocket knife on me, and it's got a little thumb light attached to it, so I turned that on and lit up his chest so I wouldn't blind him. He was breathing slow and deep, so I wondered if he was sleepwalking. I went closer and asked him again if he was okay. I moved the light up, and something didn't seem right, so I stopped. He kept breathing in this real slow, deep breath, and I sort of figured that gradually that's what was bothering me. It was like he was pretending to breathe, but not actually doing it. His breaths were too even and deep, and all his movements were exaggerated, like his shoulders going up and his chest moving. I told him to identify himself, and he made this muffled noise. I moved the light up, and I shit you not, this guy had no face, just smooth skin. I freaked out, and I sort of fumbled my light, but I saw him move towards me, but he didn't actually move. I don't know how to explain it, but one second he was at the edge of the river, and the next, he was five feet from me. I never looked away or blinked. It was like he moved so fast my brain couldn't keep up. I tripped and fell on my ass and I could see this line open up on his throat. It stretched up to his ears and his head tilted back and he smiled at me with his throat. There wasn't any blood, just this gaping dark hole and I swear he smiled at me with this gash in his throat. I got up and ran as fast as I could back to camp. I couldn't hear him following me but I felt like he was always right behind me. Even though when I looked back, I couldn't see him. I calmed down when I got back to camp. There was something about being around the other campers that made me feel safe. And that was one of the most terrifying experiences I've had as a park ranger. This story is from female park ranger named Katie. This happened to her when she got separated from her group when she was just a rookie. They were learning the basics of high elevation belaying on a well-mapped side of the mountain. And she had to use the bathroom. She went off about 50 yards from the group during a meal break and did her business. The rest is exactly as she told it. So I go to take a bathroom break and once I'm done, I start going back to the group. But I've only gotten about five feet when I realize that I have no idea where I am. And this wasn't a, oh, I got turned around loss. I mean, I had literally no clue where I was. If you'd asked me, I don't even think I'd have been able to tell you what state we were in. It was sort of how I imagine people with amnesia feel. You're completely lost and you have no idea what to do. So I stood there for a while, just trying to figure out where the hell I was and what I was supposed to do. But the longer I stand there, 
more confused and turned around, I got. So I started walking. As I recall, I just picked a random direction and went for it. And as I'm walking, it's just getting worse and worse to the point where I have no concept of why I'm on the mountain in the first place. I'm just trudging through the snow. And then I start hearing this voice. It's kind of inside my head almost. Like if a frog could talk, all low and croaky. And it's telling me over and over, it's okay. It's okay. You just need to find something to eat. Find something to eat and you'll be okay. Just keep walking and find something to eat. 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 So I start looking around for anything that I can eat. And I swear to God, I've never felt that hungry in my whole life. It was bottomless. And I think I'd have eaten just about anything you put in front of me right then. I had no concept of time. So I had no idea how long I'd been out there when I hear an actual voice coming towards me. I go towards it and see one of the other rangers, and he looks terrified. He's running towards me asking if I'm okay and what the hell I'm doing out here. And the scary thing was, as he's running towards me, I kind of feel myself reaching into my belt for my hunting knife. I'm not even really thinking about what I'm doing, but what I am thinking is that I have to eat. If I don't eat, I'll never be okay again, so I just have to eat. He sees me doing that and he backs off right away. He yells at me to put my knife away, that he's not going to hurt me. And that kind of snaps me back. All of a sudden, I know exactly where I am, and I put the knife away. I run to him and ask him how long I've been gone, thinking he'll tell me I've been gone for half an hour or an hour. But he tells me I've been gone for two days. I've gone over two peaks and ended up almost on the other side of the mountain. And if I'd kept going, I would have ended up wandering into about 300 miles of wilderness. They'd never have found me. He can't believe I'm not dead. And of course, I don't know what the hell to think. To me, no time has passed at all. I don't say anything. I just go back with him to a rendezvous point, and I'm taken to headquarters to be airlifted to the hospital. When I get there, they do all kinds of tests and try to figure out what happened. As best as they can guess, I had some kind of weird fatigue state, which is kind of like amnesia or a weird seizure that knocked my brain out of whack. But the truth is that we really don't know. It's never happened again. But I'll tell you, ever since then, I never go out there alone. People rag on me for making them come with me when I have to leave the group. But I just tell them that listening to me piss in the snow is better than losing me for two days on a freezing cold mountain. All right, my people, what did y'all think? Wild stories, huh? First-hand accounts from park rangers. Those have always fascinated me. And the number of stories that talk about the faceless man, you know, the big furry creatures or the Wendigo or Rake is crazy. And nobody really knows where all this stuff stems from. And supposedly, they are kind of trying to keep it out of the main media and keep it under wraps because they still want tourists to go to the forest. They are in fear that they'll stop coming because it's so terrifying. And I'm going to tell more of these in the near future. Kids disappearing and ended up miles away up in a mountain with a sheer steep cliff. It's insane. Nobody really knows how to explain the phenomena or what is taking place here. But nevertheless, awesome stories. Hope you enjoyed. Let me know what you think, especially the last story. What was it? What was that insatiable hunger that she could not control? Wild stuff. I never heard of it actually getting into your head and convincing you you're hungry. And the faceless man. Never heard of it until now. Crazy. Any Appalachian goers, let me know what's kind of uh, cryptid we're talking about here. Also, y'all, thank you so much for 600,000 followers on Facebook. I know we're a little past that, but... I appreciate each and every last one of you. Couldn't have done it without you. You inspire me every day. I'll keep the great stories coming as long as you stay tuned. I love you guys. Thank you so much. It's been an awesome journey. Something I will never forget.
and it's unlike anything anybody could ever experience. So thank you all. I love you. You're my family, part of the Night God Army, and I hope you always will be. Like I said, it's been an amazing ride. Hope you enjoyed the video. Stay in the love, stay in the light, be kind to others. Make sure you like and subscribe. I am out. A marine biologist encounters something horrifying while exploring the deepest, darkest depths of the ocean. Over the course of the last few weeks of training, Booker memorized nearly every facet of the Tuscany. It was a remarkable feat of engineering, could withstand more water pressure than the sea could muster up at any achievable depth. And inside this matrix of layered syntactic foam, he would follow the ballast to the gratuitous and unexplored depths of Higgins Maw. He started the separation sequence, and the deep diver fell away from the escort and dipped beneath the surface of the Pacific, then it was consumed in a whole new world albeit one he'd frequented, that of the sea. Schools of fish swam by him, and when their cloud passed through a sunbeam, it glinted silver, and out in the rocks crawled the crustaceans that spruced up all the whitewashed stones like holiday ornaments. But he had an appointment to keep, and the oxygen tank was a demanding clock, so he dove right on past the old reef and out into the open waters where the seabed couldn't be seen for many, many miles yet. The maw, Reuben had said, 50,000 feet below the surface, Booker, 50,000. Do you know what that means? Means it's a whole hell of a lot deeper down there than the Challenger Abyss. He nodded at that. Are you ready to make history? Was he? He thought he was. He'd prepared for this lonely dive and nothing else for some years now. It was the culmination of a lifetime of work and study in the field. And so tight was its grip on his mind that he often dreamt of it in his sleep, of what he'd find at the bottom and what it would mean and what monstrous things might take offense to his presence there. No, no, he shoved that thought aside. Tuscany was all the protection he needed in that regard. It offered technology on the bleeding edge in lieu of a heavy hull, and that was enough to withstand enough water pressure to crush bones beneath skin and inches of steel. What animal had jaws more powerful than the ocean itself? So he hit the thrusters and down he went. He eyed the depth meter as much as he did the sea. 100 feet, 200. Sharks and turtles and uncountable fish swept past him. 300 feet, 700 feet. 1250, the inverse height of the Empire State Building. The water began to grain up and darken as the sunlight struggled to push on through. 2000, 3000, 32, where the light no longer shines. And soon, the only lights he had in order to illuminate the path ahead were those of the Tuscany. He'd continued the descent for hours. The pressure meter ticked up in spasmic bursts, soon ticking past the point where the weight of the sea would have crushed the steel of any other vessel. One mile down, 1.6, where even sperm whales hit their lowest dive. He could now claim with confidence that no mammal on earth was as deep at that very moment as himself, and still he dove. 2.2 miles, the water was as black as space now, except for where the lights of the Tuscany pierced through it. Things were tight down there, despite the vastness of it all. 13,000 feet, the abyssal zone. Pressure stands at 11,000 psi, and he dove further. 3 miles, 3.1, now things get interesting. Mankind had visited these depths almost infrequently enough to count the expedition on a single pair of hands. He was now ranked among an illustrious few explorers, and although he wasn't the first to hit these marks, he'd hit the deepest one yet before this journey was over. 16,281.4 feet, nearly halfway to the world record. The Tuscany continued its dive. 20,000 feet down, the Haddle Zone. Pressure here is 1,100 times what it is at the surface. 29,000, the height of Mount Everest. 30, 31 the same distance as a commercial airline at the height of its flight. The Challenger Deep, what had previously been the lowest recorded place on the seabed, sat at roughly 36,000 feet below the surface in the depths of the Mariana Trench. No light from the sun had ever come close, 
And to the best accounts, life existed there, but only sparsely. And the pressure is unspeakable. But Booker was going somewhere vastly deeper even than that. All we know is we found a canyon, Reuben had said. Dwarfs the Grand, sitting dead center in the Pacific seabed. About 1,200 kilometers west of Hawaii and another 900 south. And as far as we can figure, some 50,000 feet straight on down. 36,000 feet. He was now tied for the world record. 50,000 feet? Why the hell are we just now seeing it? 36.5. He did it. His heartbeat swept up to a faster rhythm. He was officially a world record holder. No human being in recorded history had been that deep below the surface. New seabed scanning technology helped. Gave us a more detailed topographical map of the hydrosphere than we'd ever had before. 37. So what's down there? 37.3. Hell, doctor. If we knew, we wouldn't be sending you, would we? I suppose not. 38.5. Higgins Maw, according to the best information available to him at the time of departure, is a pit roughly a full kilometer across. It begins at approximately 46,000 feet below the surface and is estimated to bottom out at Higgins Deep, a small valley that sits at its base, some 5,000 additional feet below that. The Maw is the largest and deepest such formation in the hydrosphere, and yet its dimensions and location are the only things concretely known about it. That, of course, is where Booker and the Tuscany come in. He hit the floodlights underneath the Tuscany, and the glow washed over an alien landscape that likely hadn't seen light in over a billion years. There were mountains here, mountains that rivaled the Alps. He even saw life down there in its depths. A squid-like thing of simply monstrous size swam on the sub. It stopped for a moment, and during that moment, he thought it might take offense to him. But after looking hard at the Tuscany and brushing a tentacle down the port side, it swam off in search of other things. Add a girl, said Booker. He descended further, 44,000 feet, 45, and then all of a sudden, there it was. The Maw. It was a breathtaking sight to behold. A monstrously large and equally dark hole in the crust of the earth that plummeted to inconceivable fathoms. He descended a bit further, 46,000 feet. Somehow things were even blacker in the depths of the thing, even though sunlight had long since been blotted out. 47. He began to become aware of a low current pulling him downward. It wasn't particularly powerful, but it was unexpected. And that's when he saw it. A glow. He squinted and dimmed his lights to confirm the intuition. What in the name of God? It was there indeed. A dimmish, reddish purple, then green, then purple again, and then blue, floating on a mist of current some few thousand feet down. He resumed the dive to chase it. 49.5, 49.9. The glow, whatever it was, was getting deeper and wider and brighter. Soon, it lit up the whole path down and ahead. He dimmed the Tuscany's underlights to their lowest setting, and by 50, this cave isn't a straight pit. And sure enough, the hole bottomed out here, and then opened up to its left. Holy God, holy God, it was a cavern chamber, and only the enormity of its radius maintained the darkness of it despite the presence of thousands of floating bioluminescent pods that pulsed purple, green, and blue, then red, and dimmed in the interim. He took the Tuscany in deeper and her camera's word to life. The caverns became darker still when the pods faded into the water behind the ship, but there was more things to be seen here than rocks. Tuscany, about a quarter hour after entering the chamber, soon floated by a bizarrely rope-like plant of utterly impossible size, one that appeared to stretch nearly across the height of the cave and grew wider at the base. He took the submarine in for a closer inspection and hit her lights to their fullest setting. Clack! His heart dropped. There were suction cups on it, each one as big as the Tuscany herself, and they writhed and pulsed across and down the full length of what was now very clearly a tentacle. 
In panic, he shoved the Tuscany back and away from the thing, but when he tried to turn it around, the base of the hull collided with the beast and stuck fast to one of the cups. He gunned the thrusters and could hear a wet tearing sound as the machine ripped itself from the grasp of the cup. But then suddenly, the tentacle came to life. It whipped and whirled and smacked around the cavern and pressed itself to the roof, and then it fell down, deep beyond where the darkness blanketed the floor. Come on, baby! He hit the thrusters again and Tuscany rocketed off the way it came, through the darkness and off towards the pods, whose glow he hoped would afford him an opportunity to shut the lights off the ship and make his escape. If only he were so lucky, but very soon he began to hear and feel the movement of something unspeakably titanic rolling across the floor of the chamber. It rumbled and thundered and shuddered and shook. Soon, clouds of dirt and rock flew up out of the black pitch and blanketed the view forward. The sound erupted across the entire breadth of the cave at once. My eardrums nearly burst and likely would have had it not been for the muffling of the explosion provided by the walls of the Tuscany. The submarine shook, but she held up her integrity well enough for him to fly on past the floating pods towards the yawning mouth of the tunnel that would take me back out into the ocean deep. Smack! The Tuscany buckled and rolled with an impact. The tentacle, I realized, had shot up from the ground and hit the bottom of the ship between her ballast. But luckily, it knocked her with force upwards towards the tunnel. He rolled the Tuscany with the hit and managed to regain some control. And he boosted the thrusters into the turn and up again. Now, back into the maw. Then he began to climb. 52,000 feet. 51.5. Come on, baby. Come on. Don't you fail me now. Don't you freaking fail me now. Tuscany ascended with panic speed, and all the while she did it, he could feel the rumbling of the tentacle's pursuit in the walls of the pit. It smashed its way on through the tunnel and whipped and thrashed, but the Tuscany was too quick a runner. 47, 46, climbing high. The Tuscany burst out of the maw and was about to rocket straight on back to the surface, but the tentacle flew out beside her, nearly smashed her in the front window. He bent the controls to the edge of their set casting, and the Tuscany tanked to the left and missed the ground by inches. He hit the lights again to navigate the labyrinth of rocks as he struggled to remount the climb. But in the light of the ship, he saw it. Those weren't rocks. Those were massive vessels, imperial warships from ages past, bent and crooked and broken at the bottom of the sea, pulled down here by whatever it was that now threw its back to my devouring. He took the Tuscany through this nautical graveyard with far, far too much speed for his safety. Under ship towers they went, and through cannon mounts, and past the blades of dead engines and around upended rudders. The entire ground for countless miles shook and rumbled with seismic force. It was thunderously loud, and it picked up speed and violence with time. The Tuscany flew up and headed upward. 44,000. Come on, you mother... The water itself seemed to shift with the sound, and then out of nowhere, the Tuscany was no longer the only thing spilling light to the abyss. An orange glow flashed across the sea, and for an instant illuminated nearly the entirety of its vastness. Then it blinked. Then it flicked on again and stayed active. He shut off the Tuscany's lights to preserve every molecule of power for the ascent. 44-2, 44-4, Beside him in the glow, he could make out other creatures retreating, ones of spectacular size, again that mankind had never cataloged and that he sadly would not have time to at all study. There were city bus-sized manta ray-shaped things, wrapped up in cloud wisps of transparent jelly, and even that squid the size of a building, all flying upwards in a mass panic. He led the charge. <laughs> He looked behind him and down through the rear window. The mouth had moved. It was alive. God almighty, I was in the Leviathan's throat. I was in its damn throat. He saw its tentacle-like tongue lash out of the mouth and collect enough fish to feed a small town. The Tuscany rocketed ever upwards as the Leviathan whipped even larger tentacles behind it and gained speed with the force of a hurricane. The Leviathan opened its mouth yet again and spewed forward its tentacle-like tongue, and with it, it whipped up several Olympic swimming pools worth of water into a gale-force maelstrom. As he ascended upwards, he noticed the giant squid he ran into earlier wasn't able to escape. He made it out of the whirlpool by just a foot. 
It snapped its mouth shut with a thunderous, echoing snap. The Leviathan pursued him relentlessly, riding on the flood of its own current. Its tentacles each dozens of feet across and at least a mile long, beat the water back and tried to gain speed for their host. <laughs> Tuscany's speed proved worthy, as he was now at 27,000 feet, but the Leviathan did not give up chase. He could feel it doubling its efforts. The displaced water rocked the Tuscany, and she buckled and rolled in the synthetic current. Then, he heard the maw open up behind him and the water began to whip and swirl into a frenzy by the ocean load. He punched the thrusters to the breaking point. Come on! The reinforced glass began to chip ever so slightly. The chips broke into cracks, and those cracks began to crawl across the width of the window. He checked the gauges. 20,000 feet. 19. 19.3. The ascent was slowing. Come on, baby! Come on, come on, come on! Please, God! Be with me now! Be... In the orange glow of the Leviathan's eyes, he could see how quickly the water was slipping by the Tuscany and getting swept up into the maelstrom. The submarine began to sway port to starboard and shudder and shake. He watched the gauge with nauseating desperation. 15.95, 15.92, come on, come on, come on! 15.925, 15.924, shoot! And that was it. The Tuscany was caught. No sooner did the depth chart begin to slip than did he feel the whole sensation of the submarine lose all sense of control and tumble backwards and around. He was thrown out of his seat and smacked his nose against the roof of the pilot sphere. Bloodshot everywhere. He grabbed his face and began to apply pressure, hoping to slow the blood loss. But the Tuscany again flipped ballast over ballast to starboard in the whirlpool and spilled him into the hatch ladder. He felt his shoulder dislocate and his kneecap smack into the bottom rung. His head swam and still the Tuscany tumbled backwards. The cracks were spreading faster. He could smell the inside of the beast's mouth through the hull of the ship. But then, all at once, and not a moment too soon, he got an idea. It wasn't a good one, but better than nothing. He managed to limp and tumble his way through the controls and grip the hand as the ship rolled. Wait for it, wait for it. Now! The sound of the roar was so close every last control surface in the sphere rattled in its case. But then he flared up the thrusters, full blast, and at an angle. And the Tuscany shuddered and flipped and shook, and with fortune, fell straight out of the maelstrom, with just inches to spare. The Leviathan's maw grazed the starboard side, and the impact sent him into the roof while the ship rolled end over end again. He smacked his ribs up on the dip in the alcove and fell back down into his seat head first, and then fell onto the floor. He was free, but only just. The Tuscany tumbled, banked, and rolled, slower now in absence of the Whirlpool's flood current. He tried to steer away, but it was useless. The ship flipped around the back of the Leviathan's titanic maw and up over its head as the beast flew on by underneath him like a freight train. And for the first time since catching its eye, he began to fully appreciate the magnitude of this monster's size. Its back was an endless snake-like and sharp fin spine the size of a minor mountain range. And only quick maneuvering moved the Tuscany away from the jagged back fins that chugged up towards him and sliced open the sea itself. The current they'd swept up sent the submarine reeling backwards off a bit further and into relative safety. He quickly dimmed the lights to their lowest setting and caught his breath as the full form of the Leviathan washed on past him. It stretched far away into the abyss below for well over a mile, and dragging away behind it were thousands upon thousands of tentacles, a forest of the things, each the size of a six-lane highway and tipped with razor-sharp hooks and a flurry of wing fins. It took a full three minutes for the beast to pass by him fully, and then it curved around in the other direction and swam off in search of other things to devour. Then it was gone. He surfaced hours later, having allowed the battered Tuscany to take its time with the journey. She was solely responsible for his escape. A marvel of engineering indeed. Once he did break the surface, he dispersed a distress beacon and then promptly collapsed from exhaustion. He was picked up by the Coast Guard some hours after that, a few hundred miles southwest of Hawaii, and pulled from the near wreckage of his submarine. He was taken to a hospital in Hawaii where he recovered. During his recovery, he heard isolated chatter of a tremendous seismic activity near where he'd been, and how the whole ocean floor had changed and moved and shifted form. But he couldn't care less. He told the bastards what he knew. And on top of that, they have the Tuscany, and they have all the recorded evidence. And you now have this written account. What everyone does with this information now is entirely up to them. As far as Booker, he won't be doing any diving anytime soon. 
He's come to the realization that mankind has more than enough space to expand throughout and live upon and thrive in, above, and near the surface and on land. But there are things in the sea that hold ownership of the deep, and perhaps it's best to leave it that way for all of our sake. Stay in love, stay in light, be kind to others, and stay tuned. I am out.